Please join me as we pray and ask God for his help. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray tonight that you will help us to understand your word, but more than just to understand it, we pray that you help us to believe your authority in our lives so that we act in accordance with what your word says. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, the universities of Sydney and New South Wales and La Trobe released the results of a study. Two weeks ago, um, the study that was released was the 2012 Australian Study of Health and Reproduction. It's the country's largest study into Australian sexual activity and attitudes. It had previously been conducted in 2002, uh, and then again, it was conducted in 2012. In 2012, more than 20,000 20, 20, people aged between 16 and 69 years were interviewed on the phone about their sexual habits. And then the surveys in 2002 and 2012 were compared to see how, how society has changed over those 10 years. In 2012... 92% of people surveyed reported that they'd had sexual intercourse. Uh, women reported an average of 8.9 sexual partners, while men reported an average of 17.5 sexual partners. Do the maths. Someone is not telling the truth. <laughs> Someone is exaggerating. Probably both. It seems that men over-report their sexual experience and women under-report their sexual experience. But anyway, uh, the survey suggests that people in 2012 were more accepting of premarital sex, different sexual practices and homosexuality than they were a decade previously. There was an increase in acceptance of those things. Uh, Professor Juliet Richters says that the study showed, and I quote, we are becoming both more tolerant of others and more adventurous in our own bedrooms. She says, I quote again, we've now got a generation not just of children, but of grown-ups whose parents don't think sex is wrong in and of itself, who don't assume it's dangerous and terrible. But for all the supposed greater tolerance and greater acceptance of sexual practices and so on, the actual amount of sex that people have dropped between 2002 and 2012. In 2012, on average... People report that they had sex 1.4 times per week. That compares to 1.8 times per week in 2002. Quite a significant drop. One of the biggest changes over the decade was the increase in the use of pornography. In 2002, less than one out of ten people reported or admitted using pornography, around about 9%. That changed in the 2012 study to 50%. Five out of ten people admitted using pornography. It seems in our culture between the years of 2002 and 2012 that sex has gradually been replaced by pornography and masturbation. One thing that didn't change was in the area of faithfulness. Around about 85% of people in both 2002 and 2012, around about 85% of people believe that having an affair while in an exclusive relationship is always wrong. And around about 90% of, 95% of people, around about 95% of people expected exclusivity in their relationships. 
put all the stuff together, and there's heaps of other stuff that's uh, in this survey, but put it all together. One editorial summarises the sexuality of an ordinary Australian in this way. I quote again. A conventional sex life might involve several partners in the late teens and 20s, followed by one or more long-term relationships. Interesting stuff, don't you think? That is ordinary, conventional Australian sexuality. A few partners when you're young, then one or more long-term relationships supplemented for most people by pornography. And meanwhile, my suspicion is that most people in our culture have no idea what the Christian teaching on sex is and think that it has no relevance whatsoever. Uh, they probably assume, if you ask them, that uh, Christians are against sex. We are those people that uh, Juliet Richters is talking about who think that sex is wrong in and of itself and that it's dangerous and terrible, to quote that professor. But, but then on the other hand, they probably suspect, based on everything that they hear in the news about the church, that there's some hidden sexuality, hidden sexual immorality going on under the surface. So Christians, they are the people who say, don't have sex, it's terrible, but meanwhile they're sexually abusing children. That, I think, is the perception. Our culture would say that the Christian view of sex is at best old-fashioned, irrelevant, anachronistic, archaic, from the Dark Ages, that's at best, and at worst they would say that it's hypocritical and repressed and unhealthy. Our culture thinks it's grown out of the Christian view. Our culture thinks that the church should stick its nose out of sexuality. Our culture thinks that the sexual revolution of the 1960s has brought freedom and enlightenment. Although if you know your history, you will know that there is nothing whatsoever new about the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s. In fact, our culture's ideas about sex are really startlingly similar to the ideas back in Thessalonica in the first century. Let me, let me give you a few examples. In Thessalonica, it was culturally acceptable, for a young man at least, to have sexual relationships before marriage. Uh, the ancient philosopher Cicero uh, said, and I quote, desire and pleasure should be allowed among the young, uh, quote again, if these pleasures do not do damage to oneself or others. That sounds very modern, doesn't it? Do what you want as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Sounds like somebody's mum from yesterday, not, from, not Cicero from ancient, uh, ancient Greece. Uh, so sex before marriage, fine, at least for men. I mean, they had to do it with somebody, but it was frowned on for, for the girls. Uh, like in our culture, uh, faithfulness in marriage was valued in, uh, in Thessalonica by most people, but within certain limits. Faithfulness was conceived in a certain way. It was assumed that you, would have, um, that you would have a wife and you would be faithful to her, but there were a few exceptions. So it was assumed, for example, that a man would have sex with his slaves. Uh, you own them, they're yours, of course, you have sex with them. Um, the ancient philosopher Demosthenes put it this way. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives, listen carefully, wives, to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. That's Demosthenes, the ancient philosopher. Uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, religion was considered to be irrelevant to the whole topic. 
religion back then, and this is something that I didn't know until this week when I, when I uh, studied the commentaries, religion back then did not concern itself with morality. Religion did not talk about what was right or wrong. In the ancient world, religion was all about choosing a god and getting a god, try, trying to do things to get that god to give you stuff. So you would pray to a god or make a sacrifice to a god or perform some kind of ritual in accordance with what that god was like to, to try to get the god to help you, maybe help you in business or, or, or heal your sickness or get your crops to grow or give you children or something like that. Religion was not about how you act. The ancient gods were not concerned about ethics. Instead, ethics was something for philosophers to think about. Commentator Jean Green puts it this way. In antiquity, ethics was the domain of the philosophers and not of the gods. Normally, religion did not have anything to do with the morality of the worshippers. In fact, a number of cults promoted a lifestyle that would have been viewed as immoral from a Christian perspective. Uh, far from teaching sexual morality, many of the religions in ancient Thessalonica actually promoted sexual immorality. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, one of the more popular gods in Thessalonica was Dionysus, also called Bacchus. He was the god of wine. He was the god who you would ask to, to, to give you a, a good, comfortable, happy life, and he's worshipped by having a drunken orgy. There was the god Pyrrhus, a god of fertility, the kind of god you would pray to if you wanted to have children or, or wanted your crops to grow or something like that. Pyrrhus was depicted as a giant penis with a tiny body attached. And uh, the, the penis was borne aloft in religious processions while people sang hymns in its honour. There you go, that's church for you. Um, one of the most popular deities was another fertility goddess, the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the symbol of sexual license and a patroness, the patroness of prostitutes. And uh, the temple of Aphrodite was basically a brothel. Jean Green makes this comment. It comes as no surprise to find that the Christians in Thessalonica, the majority of whom had been converted out of idolatry, needed special and strong instruction concerning sexual purity. Far from prohibiting sexual immorality, the cults of Dionysus, Aphrodite, Osiris and Isis, the Kibirus and Priapus promoted sexual license. That's how you get them to give you fertility, by doing sexual things in their temples. Sexual revolution was in full swing in Thessalonica in ways very similar to our own culture. Think about it. They say sex before marriage is fine, like us. They value faithfulness but don't necessarily practice it like us. And meanwhile, they say religion is at best irrelevant or at worst sexually dubious, like us. And it was into this culture in Thessalonica in the first century that a little church was born. Paul and Silas came, they preached the good news of Jesus to the Thessalonians. And, and, and in the brief time that they had before they were thrown out of town, they also taught something Remarkable, something completely new. It was the sort of thing Judaism taught, but in terms, of, in terms of Gentiles, in terms of idolaters, this is radically new sort of a teaching. They taught the Thessalonians that God does care how they live. They, they taught the Thessalonians that God is concerned with morality. They taught them, not just that Jesus died for them and rose again, but they taught them how to live in a way that pleases God. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Have a look with me. The sort of thing, sort of verse you just skip over. We don't realize how utterly radical it was in context. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. The apostles gave instruction about godly behavior and miraculously the Thessalonians had been impacted by it. Their behavior had changed. You can see it again in verse 1. We instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. The Thessalonians changed their morality because of Jesus. But Paul doesn't want them to rest on their laurels. No, he says Jesus has authority as Lord in all aspects of your lives. And so you need to continue to bring all aspects of your lives under his lordship. It's an ongoing process of moral growth. Halfway through verse 1. Now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this, that is to live in a way that is pleasing to God, to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who has authority over morality. And now, at this point, Paul turns to address the issue of sexual immorality. He, he says what God's will is. God wants his people to be, he says, sanctified. Now, that word sanctified is a little bit of a difficult word. It means, sanctified means to be, uh, to be holy. Doesn't really help, though, does it? What, is it? what does it mean to be holy? To be holy means to be set apart. Set apart to be different because you belong to God. To be different because you belong to God. And what that means in terms of sexual morality is this. It means that you avoid sexual immorality. You steer completely clear of sexual immorality. Verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. Now that word translated sexual immorality, it's, it's a Greek word, the word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. Um, Jean Green explains what the word means. Let me quote. Sexual immorality, porneia, meant any kind of sexual relation outside of heterosexual marriage, whether it was fornication, sex before marriage, adultery, homosexuality, incest, prostitution or bestiality, which means sex with animals. So it's quite, quite a broad word there, isn't it? Basically, any kind of sex outside of heterosexual marriage. And of course, Jesus, Jesus takes it even further than that, doesn't he? Uh, think about the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at together last year, Matthew chapter 5. He says, you even look at a woman lustfully. You have committed adultery with her in your heart. That's also sexually immoral. God calls on his people to be different in their sexuality because they belong to him. It is God's will that his people totally separate themselves from sexual immorality in all its forms. Now, Paul goes on to talk about what that will mean. He uses, uh, he uses a slightly difficult expression. It's a sort of a slang expression, an idiomatic expression. And you can see from the text, it's a little bit difficult to translate. So just have a look at the text there, and you can see that it says in the text, learn to control his own body. Can you see that? But then it's got like a little A or a little B or something. Can you see it there? It's got a little A or a B, which takes you down to the footnote, uh, which says it may mean learn to control your own body, or it may mean learn to live with your wife or learn to acquire a wife. Boy, that doesn't seem anything like the same, does it? Well, let, let me just read the verse. 
um, that each of you should learn to control his own body, or perhaps acquire a wife, in a way that is holy and honourable. As I say, tricky little phrase. Let, let me give you a, a literal translation that tries to give you the, the, sort of the vibe of the verse. A literal translation would be something like this. Each of you needs to learn to get your stuff under control in a holy and honourable way. To, to, to get your gear together in a way that's holy and honourable. You get the kind of the vibe? And it's, a, it's, it's obviously an idiom, an expression, and uh, it can mean a number of things. Uh, so this word stuff, get your stuff together, um, this word stuff, it's used uh, as a metaphor for your body in, in some places in, uh, in ancient literature. It's also used a, as a metaphor for your wife um, in, uh, in, in ancient literature. It also means vessel or tools, it's, it's, it's all, all kinds of things it can mean. Uh, and that word get control of can mean to kind of master like a musical instrument or something like that, get, get, con- get control of it in that way. It can also mean get control of it in the sense of buy it or acquire it. So, what do you do with the idiom? The idiom could mean get your stuff together in, sense, in the sense of control your body, and that makes sense. The Bible talks about that in other places as well, doesn't it? We should be self-controlled. That is how you avoid sexual immorality. could also mean, though, get yourself a wife and, and, and acquire her in holy matrimony in a way that's holy and honourable. That's also another way the idiom is used in, in, uh, in ancient literature, and, and also it's, it's a biblical idea as well, isn't it? We should avoid sexual immorality by getting married. Our God has given us marriage as the appropriate relationship in which to express our sexuality in a holy way. Hard to know what to do with it. Either way, though, Paul says we've got to be different to the people around us. Uh, different, because j- just, notice, just notice what those people are like who don't control themselves, who just do what they want to do sexually. He says... He says they don't know God. Verse 5, control yourself in a way that's holy and honourable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Uncontrolled lust is for people who don't know God, the God who does demand morality. Uh, Paul also goes on to say that um, sexual immorality hurts other people. He uses a couple of words. He says that it wrongs people. It, uh, it, it oversteps the bounds with other people. It, 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 it treads on people's toes, hurts them. And also he says that uh, sexual immorality takes advantage of other people. It's, it's exploitation. It's stealing. If you are not married and you have sex with someone, you are stealing from yourself. You are stealing from your future husband or wife. You're stealing from that person. You're stealing from their future husband or wife. Uh, If you are married and you have adulterous sex, you are stealing from your spouse and you're stealing from the other person's spouse. In sexual immorality, you are ripping off your brother or sister. You are taking from them what does not belong to you. Verse 6. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Sexual immorality is what people who don't know God do. It wrongs other people, takes advantage of them, and Paul goes on to say that Jesus will punish it. Halfway through verse 6. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. Uh, Paul finishes up this section by showing again that sexual immorality is contrary to God's will. God, in the gospel, calls us into his holy kingdom and glory. 
He's not calling us into a heaven that is full of sexual immorality. He's calling us into a holy kingdom, not into impurity. You want to be with him in heaven, you don't want to be impure. And God, in the gospel, gives you his holy spirit, not an unholy spirit. And so if you reject this teaching about sexual immorality, you're not rejecting mere human teaching. No, no, you are rejecting the gospel. You are rejecting the whole, the whole plan of God for your life in the gospel. You are rejecting God himself. Verse 7. For God did not call us as Christians, he didn't call us to be Christians, to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Okay, that's as far as we're going. Can you see what Paul's saying here? Christians must live in a way that pleases God. Jesus is not just a God who you ask stuff from. He's not just a God that you, you, know, you burn paper things to because you want to get them. No, no, Jesus is the Lord who calls on his people to live for him in every aspect of their lives. And in the area of sex, that means no sexual immorality, no sex outside of marriage, which means controlling yourself and or getting married. Sexual immorality is something that people who don't know God do. It is something that wrongs and exploits other people. It is the sort of behaviour Jesus will punish It is contrary to God's will for us to be holy and to be in his holy kingdom. It opposes the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Friends, you can pretty this up as much as you want, but the reality is this comes clashing with what our culture thinks. The Bible says one thing and our culture does not agree. Our culture thinks some forms of sexual immorality are fine. But of course, remember, that's what Thessalonian culture thought as well. Not like Paul was writing something that was cultural. It was completely countercultural in Thessalonica as well. Our culture thinks that religion should, should keep its nose out, that religion shouldn't have anything to say in terms of what people should do sexually. But of course, that's what Thessalonian culture thought as well. Friends, our culture doesn't like it. Our culture thinks that religion should keep its nose out. But friends... Jesus refuses to stay out of our bedrooms. Jesus demands to be Lord of our sex lives. If we reject this instruction, we are not rejecting man, we are rejecting God. So let's think about applying the passage to ourselves. I think there are two steps. Very simple. First, we need to see sexual immorality for what it is. I think our eyes are so clouded by our hormones and by our culture that we, we fail to see sexual immorality as it is. And then secondly, we need to avoid it. See the application? See it for what it is, see it how God sees it, and avoid it. Let's look at each of those. Firstly, let's see sexual immorality for what it is. Friends, sex is a good gift from God. Uh, Christians do not believe that sex is of itself wrong. Sex do not, uh, Christians do not think that sex is uh, dangerous and terrible of itself. No, sex is a good gift from God. He created it for our pleasure as well as for making babies. It is meant to be like a glue that binds a marriage. God invented it. He invented it to be good fun to, so that it creates unified families on the basis of which you build stable churches and stable society. 
Sex is meant to promote peace and harmony and unity. But what sexual immorality does, it distorts God's good, God's good gift. It doesn't promote unity and harmony. Instead, it becomes a way for us to wrong people, to, to take advantage of them. It turns God's good gift into something that creates hatred and jealousy and pain. And let, let, me, let me put it this way. Do, do you want to really get hurt? Sexual immorality will do it for you. Do, do you want to really hurt somebody else? Do, do you want to have somebody hate you? Sexual immorality is the way to do it. As you selfishly use other people, you hurt them. You hurt them deeply. And it's not just the person you have sex with. Sexual immorality will tear your family apart. Uh, if you are married, you will alienate your spouse. Still today, in Australian culture, where there has been an immoral uh, affair, two-thirds of marriages break up. You will alienate your spouse. You will lose the respect of your children if you have them. Uh, sexual immorality will also create problems at church. Uh, if you want to tear our church apart, start having sex with someone in the congregation other than your spouse. You want to rip up the youth group? Start having sex with someone in the youth group who is not your spouse. That's going to do it every time. As people rip each other off, as they lie and deceive each other, as they exploit each other, as they break up after having a sexual relationship with all the pain that causes, it is sure to tear up the unity of a congregation. Sexual immorality is a distortion of God's good gift of sex. Instead of building love between married couples, it tears it down. Instead of unifying families and churches, it rips them apart, and that's just the human aspect. Then there's what it means for our relationship with God. Friends, God calls us to be holy. That's the whole reason he gave Jesus to die for us, to call us into his holy kingdom and glory, to save us from sin into a sinless heaven. Sexual immorality is entirely contrary to God's will and plan for your life. Sexual immorality shows that you don't know God and you don't want to know him. Sexual immorality, that is the kind of thing that brings the anger of judgment and of, of God, the, the very wrath that is to come that Jesus rescues us from. You can't want to be in God's holy, sin-free kingdom and be sexually unholy. You can't want to have God's Holy Spirit and be sexually unholy. So friends, let, let, me, let me lay it out as clearly as I can. Here's how it is. If you want to live a life of sexual immorality, you don't want to be a Christian. It, it's not both and. It's either or. T take your pick. You can have Jesus as your Lord... Or you can have sexual immorality. One or the other, but not both. It's as simple as that. You're starting to see it for what it is. Sexual immorality, it's tempting, isn't it? And we live in such a sex-saturated society, it's tempting. The, the, the thought of it might make you feel all warm and gooey. It's culturally acceptable. But you've got to see it for what it is. It will hurt you. It will hurt other people. It will wreck your marriage, whether that be in the present or the future. It will wreck your family. It will wreck your church. And above all, it will wreck your relationship with God. Friends, I'm all for sex. Sex is great. But, but no sex could be worth that, could it? No sex could be worth that. No way. 
So what do we need to do? Well, second point of application, we need to avoid sexual immorality. We need to flee from sexual immorality. What's that going to mean? It's going to mean whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. If you are involved in sexual immorality now, stop. Stop, please. Stop the affair. End the relationship. I'm reminded of uh, the story that I heard a few years ago, a true story apparently of a church in the south of Sydney where a minister discovered that uh, one of his elders was uh, involved in an adulterous affair with his secretary. Uh, that Sunday they came to communion and the elder was there about to serve communion, uh, but the minister hadn't had a chance to speak to him yet. And so at the beginning of the communion service he stood up and he said, look, um, we were about to have communion here in church uh, today, but um, I've, I've just discovered during the week that there's a, a man in our church who's um, having an immoral affair, and so I've decided, because I've not had the opportunity to speak to him yet, to, to cancel communion for, for, for today. After the service, he had four men come up to him and say, how did you know? <clears throat> Apparently a true story. Um, I don't know of adulterous affairs happening in our church at the moment, but reality is statistics show that probably they are somewhere. If that's you, stop. Stop. You've you got to stop. For your good, for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of, of your family, for the sake of your church, you've got to stop. If you are single, if you are single and you're going out with someone and you're being sexually immoral, either end the relationship or get married. I, I, don't, I don't get this, this thing about, well, and, until we finish our education and until we um, get jobs and until we've bought a house and until we're you know, 45, we, we can't get married. But meanwhile, we can, we can let our relationship drift and be sexually immoral. Uh-uh. If you're being sexually immoral, you've got to either end the relationship or get married. Don't let it drift on. And honestly, if you're not being sexually immoral and you've been going out for years and years, what is wrong with you? I mean... There's something wrong with that relationship if you can keep it your hands off each other with no problems at all and go on for years and years. Certainly it's going to be interesting if you do get married to try to change gears. Anyway, I'm drifting from my notes. Um, uh, For all of us, for all of us we need to steer clear of temptation. That means whatever leads you into sexual immorality, you've got to avoid it. What does that mean for you? Does it mean turning off the TV? Is that uh, what leads you astray? Does it mean getting um, accountability software on your computer? Uh, Does it mean you've got to end that friendship? Does it mean you've got to change your whole group of friends? Uh, Does it mean you've got to stop going to that restaurant or to that bar? Do you you have to steer clear of that person at work? Do Do you need to stop the business trips? Whatever it is that tempts you to sexual immorality, run away from it. It's not worth it. Um, There are also a couple of ways that we can help each other on this issue. Uh, For a start, I mean, I've been so politically correct uh, so so far that I may as well just keep on going. Let me be politically incorrect. We can think about dressing modestly. That would help your brothers and sisters. I know you've got the right to wear what you want and blah-de-blah, but reality is you will help your brothers and sisters if you dress with modesty. Uh, I will remember the comment of uh, Pastor Ray Galea. Uh, at the time, he'd put on a, a fair bit of weight. And he said to his congregation, the only belly button I want to see in this church is mine. And I haven't seen that for months. <laughs> um, uh, we can help each other by being modest. Uh, also, we can be accountable to each other, can't we? Uh, the Bible says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. The reality is sin flourishes in darkness. If nobody knows about it, you'll keep doing it. You've got to bring it out to the light. 
confessed your struggles to, to your spouse or to a trusted friend of the same sex. If you don't know anyone you can trust, please talk to your Bible study leader or to Warren or Beth or Carmelina or me. All right, there's your application. Very simple, isn't it? See sexual immorality for what it is and avoid it. Right, just before I finish, the last thing I want to say is this. Uh, sexual sin is bad. Sexual sin is terribly damaging. Uh, look, look at what it says about it in 1 Corinthians 6. It, 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 it's, it, it hits deeply into our personhood, our sexuality. It is terribly damaging, but friends, it's not unforgivable. If you are entangled in sexual sin, there is hope for you. Forgiveness and cleansing are available. Put your faith in Jesus. Rely on his death and resurrection because he has done everything that it takes and he can present you clean and pure and holy as God's special beloved child. He's done what it takes on the cross. So don't just flee from sexual immorality, flee to Jesus. As it says in 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to finish here with this amazing, wonderful news. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived about that. But listen to this. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed clean. You were sanctified, made holy. You were justified, declared right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great Saviour, our wonderful, magnificent Saviour, who presents us pure and holy before you. But Heavenly Father, we remember that our Saviour is also our Lord, who has authority in every aspect of our lives. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would please strengthen and empower us to turn away from sexual sin, to avoid sexual immorality, and to live your way in a way that is self-controlled and holy and honourable. Uh, please help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name.